Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A number of years ago, I was at a friend, some friend's home. And you know how it is when you're in the kitchen helping prepare dinner or cleaning up. You begin to look around and notice things that they have. And I noticed a list on their refrigerator door. It was a list that contained two columns. And one column said, things we need. On the list were things like laundry soap and toothpaste and scotch tape. And then on the other column, the list was entitled, Things We Want. And I noticed that one of the things was a Tupperware container for cookies or cupcakes. Now Becky might have that on her Things She Needs column, but for this couple it was Things We Want, a Tupperware container for cookies and cupcakes. I was impressed and intrigued by my friend's ability to discern between their wants and their needs. But what also struck me in acknowledging their list was what I need or what I want may be different than from what other people feel that they need or they want. I remember at that very time in my life, I was doing an awful lot of baking for friends and for church. And I felt that I needed a Tupperware container for all these cookies and cupcakes that I was making. How would I transport them after all? But still, as I walked out of their home that evening, was that Tupperware container a want or a need? And how do I discern as a member of a middle-class society of the United States, the most wealthy country in the world, what is a want and what is a need? Much of our sense of stewardship depends on our acceptance of who we are, what we need, what we do with our resources, and in fact, whose we are. In our Philippians text that Matt read to us this morning, we find ourselves reading an excerpt from a letter of Paul to a dear group of people, the Philippians. This is a letter of friendship, a group of people and Paul who had bonded and created a good friendship over time. It was not full of admonition or correction. The Philippians, in fact, had always been quite supportive of Paul's ministry in many ways. And if you read the whole the whole letter, which isn't that long, you'll see this very evident. But when they receive this letter from Paul, we realize in chapter 4 that not everything is going quite perfectly for the Philippians. Paul realizes this from his distance location and tries to point out his fault, their faults in a loving way. He carefronts them, might I say. He describes their opponents outside of the church or outside of their congregations who have caused them suffering and is discouraging them from listening to these outside voices that might be confusing them with alternative teachings. And Paul is also aware of a conflict between two leaders of the church. 
And he's encouraging not only these leaders, but also the rest of the church to unite, to, quote, think the same thing. So when Paul's letter arrived in an ancient Macedonia living room, and someone comes running into the room, we've got mail, we've got mail, a letter from Paul, and they all get excited. And then they read the words from Paul that say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And they're looking across the room at the person with with whom they may have a disgruntled opinion or differing attitude. The words rejoice in the Lord always are not met by tranquil, untroubled, happy ears where everything is hunky-dory and life was just swell. No, that wasn't the case for them. Instead, the Philippians were being troubled by external threats to their understanding of the gospel and also to internal strife among them. Sure, everyone loves getting a real personal handwritten letter. Don't you love that when you get the mail, especially these days? I mean, it's becoming more and more rare. I always pull that out and read that last, if I get one. But I would guess, in light of all that was going on for the Philippians, when they received this letter, which I suspect was perhaps just as rare as a handwritten letter is nowadays from Paul, they may wonder at his words, and they may wonder if their rejoicing might actually need to wait for a happier time. Rejoice! Always. Really, Paul? Do you know what my day was like? Perhaps Paul needed a reality check. Perhaps Paul didn't know the Philippians as well as we thought he might. But as it turns out, Paul does know. And at the beginning of the letter to the Philippians, Paul writes about his own hardships very prominently. He offers himself as an example to the suffering Philippians. Here is an imprisoned Paul who is dealing with rivals who are out to get him at every opportunity. And what does Paul say when he thinks about his own situation? I rejoice. And the reason that he rejoices when things aren't so great, in fact, when they are downright bad, Paul says, is Christ. And in this case, he celebrates the fact that Christ's good news is going forth. Now, Paul explains that we don't rejoice merely for pleasant circumstances or when life is going really well. We rejoice because of the steady good that is found in Jesus Christ. We rejoice because of the steadfastness of the good that is found in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord, says Paul, because prosperity and happy times and all the other potential reasons that you may be rejoicing can't be counted on to continue, as always. Paul's words are really nice to hear. They're really quite interesting. And I'd love to be able to take them to heart. Thank you very much. But they're counterintuitive. Why would I rejoice in adversity? Why not take Job's wife's advice and curse the day of my birth when things just are not going well at all? 
And in its essence, though, Christianity is reality-oriented, affirming that the circumstances we experience are significant and worthy of both our and God's attention. And that is a strong contest, co contrast with other world religions, such as Buddhism or Gnosticism, that consider suffering insignificant. We, again, can rejoice in the fact that we have a God who honors when our life isn't worthy of rejoicing. God wants us to be bothered, as the hymn that we sang at the opening this morning with Margaret leading. God wants us to be bothered by the lack of clean water and bread and a safe place for growing. God wants us to know that, to do something about it and still rejoice. So what is this rejoice always stuff, Paul? Is it just a Pollyanna detached from reality, a baseless optimism? Perhaps Paul had indeed lost his sanity while in prison, or at least he lost his touch with reality. Or is it something deeper, something revolutionary, something that has power to overthrow the world, the world order that denies clean water and safe places for growing? Is there something deeper being whispered in these words to the Philippians? Well, the hint comes in verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. I felt like Paul was screaming these words at me this week. They were perhaps my thorn in my flesh this week. I'm one of those persons that will lose sleep over things that cause me anxiety. You can determine how stressed my life is by how much sleep I get at night. And while my life is full of really good things right now, I'm still incredibly anxious, thinking about all the changes that are happening to me in the coming months a house to sell, a wedding to plan, a move to another state, a beloved congregation to say goodbye to, a new house, figuring out new employment. And Paul says, Sue, don't be anxious about anything. Paul understood that adversity produces anxiety when we are pressed, and when we are tempted to fall into a scarcity mentality that sees all other persons as competitors for insufficient resources and makes us opponents of our neighbors. There's not enough to go around, so I'm going to make sure I get mine. And we, come, we become isolated from our sisters and our brothers, alone with our own fear and our greed. Anxiety produces reactivity, which leads to the violence that robs others of life's necessities. Paradoxically, Paul's proposed solution to this turns into a military metaphor. He exhorts us to let God's peace guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So being overwhelmed by the peace of Jesus can enable us to live with our neighbors in mutual care and support rather than in suspicion and distrust. 
But is this good stewardship? I believe it is. Sometimes we think we will have joy from giving. At least that's what we're taught as little kids when our parents say, no, share the toy with your friend. It will make you all feel better. And sometimes it is truly what we feel when we give, not just much what we have out of our surplus, but from our own necessities, out of our desire to be generous, to share the good news of Jesus in our lives through multiple ways. What Paul is teaching the Philippians and in turn to us is that while joy can indeed come from giving, as Christians, we actually have to acknowledge the joy first because we have reason to access it. It is ours for the taking. We can then freely give to others, whether it be our time, our money, our resources, and that is a response to that joy of Christ. But even with all of that, sometimes it's still hard to give generously, to live peacefully, to live well within our means, to rejoice always. One of the keys for living this way with a sense of rejoicing is knowing that we rejoice when we accept what we have or what we no longer need to make us happy. Where is the core of our joy? Is it really in having multiple Tupperware containers, which might make us happy? Or is it in finding that deep joy, the kind that cannot be found in tangible objects? And here is where we may turn to verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can live without the new car. Christ will strengthen me. I can manage my bills this month. Christ will strengthen me. I can live with the strains on my marriage. Christ will strengthen me. Or will Christ? Verse 13 is probably one of the most misinterpreted verses in the New Testament. You see it often printed on people's t-shirts or on bumper stickers as a declaration of personal achievement. Through Christ, I can do anything. It's the Christian version of the Nike tagline, just do it. But that's not the point Paul is making. Following Jesus doesn't make us into superheroes who live beyond the limits of human frailty and finitude. What Paul is highlighting is how the experience of Christian community, specifically the mutually supportive love between him and the disciples in Philippi, is the means by which God sustains Paul and all of us in adversity. It is the way in which Paul was able to endure the imprisonment and the awful treatment. Think about our community life here each Sunday morning on any given week. This is where verse 13 comes to life. Through Christ, through this body of believers, I can do anything. Paul is clear. Our concern for others must go beyond good thoughts or good intentions. You were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it, Paul writes. We actually are afloat in an ocean of opportunities to, sem- to demonstrate in some practical ways our concern for those neighbors, near and far, young and old, with whom God has gifted us. And by, as verse 14 says, sharing in their troubles, 
we can all experience the overwhelming shalom of Jesus, the peace and wholeness that are his gift to us. His gift of peace and wholeness that nothing in this world can match. His gift of peace and wholeness that the worst this world can fling at us cannot steal from us. When I was a graduate student at Penn State, I was doing some research one summer for one of my professors, Dr. Messman. I may have shared this story with some of you before, but I was reminded of it this week. As I was sitting one summer day in front of her filing cabinets, filing away some research documents, she was sitting at her desk, and suddenly she said, I could never do what you do. I looked up from my filing cabinet and looked at her, this young PhD, and I said, file documents? And she said, no, no, not filing documents. I could never do what you do. And I said, do what? And she said, live as a Christian. I was surprised because I didn't think that I had proudly professed my Christianity to her in so many words. And so I said, well, why do you say that? And she said, you make it seem so effortless. You seem so comfortable with it. I couldn't do that. I laughed, actually, because it was the last thing I expected her to say to me. And to me, being a Christian didn't necessarily feel comfortable or easy, especially in that situation where I felt very isolated and ostracized. But I told her, Dr. Messman, you can. You can do it. We make lots of mistakes. I make lots of mistakes. But, but it's okay. It's real. It can be done, and you can do it too. She said, I'm not so sure. I can. I don't think I could do it, not in the way that I see it in you. I wish I had more words of encouragement to offer Dr. Messman that day. I wish that I had been more articulate in my ways to convince her that she too could, could embrace this Christian lifestyle. But she was my professor, my supervisor that summer. She would later sit on my thesis committee. And I was 27 years old and was shocked at such a comment. And I continued instead, instead of preaching to her with my words, I continued to live my life, the life that she had seen in me over the last year. And I continued to preach to her that way as her grad student. What Paul envisions and what we are called to do is not to lecture as experts to passive listeners soaking up our words like, like sponges, but rather with transparent humility to share the story of our life with God, its ups and downs, our failures and our victories, connecting and listening intently with a coworker over coffee, making eye contact in a rearview mirror with your child on the way home from piano lessons when you ask them a question, being honest, with calls when we play sports 
and not letting our competitiveness override our integrity. Sending a simple but helpful card in the mail to someone who could use a lift. This is how faith gets transmitted and nurtured. And we live out this scripture when we give to others, when we model the unselfish generosity and the relentless pursuit of justice that Jesus incarnated. The most compelling witness we as Christians can give to the truth of the great good news of Jesus is to live a better way. To show that in the midst of adversity, in the experience of suffering, life in community with Jesus and with one another makes sense. That it is, quote, a foretaste of glory divine. That God's peaceable kingdom, the beloved community, can begin to exist in the here and now, not some far off time. Our good news is to share with each other what we have. Our time, a listening ear, the things we own, our insight, our experiences, our compassion, our food, our zest for life, our music, our love of God. Jesus understood his presence in the world as being good news to the poor and as his ongoing tangible presence in our city of Lancaster, we are called to live out his radical hospitality. Amen.